0: My name's Albert and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, you're a sweet alcoholic from Dallas. By the grace of God and the fellowship of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you and conferences like this and my pretty Alan on wife, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since September the seventh of nineteen seventy three, and for that I'm eternally grateful. We uh, give our sobriety date in Texas on the premise that uh, if you don't give one, you may not have one. And there are a lot of people here that uh, kind of weave in and out of Texas, so I wanted to make sure that I gave you a proper Texas introduction. I bring you greetings from the Horizon Group in Dallas, Texas, from uh, South Fork, Bobby, and J.R. We're all here tonight. I want to uh, thank Cornel. So very, very much for the invitation that he has extended not only to me but to my wife and to our daughter, Roxanne, who is here tonight. And uh, it has meant a great deal. Bob talked uh, Thursday evening about the fact that uh, the family has been a part of, and and I was uh, listening to the talk about the fellowship. And and we're just so pleased to be here. You are special people in a special place at a special conference. And it's, uh, it's been very touching. I want to thank uh, the committee also, other people responsible for the, uh, the kindness and uh, thoughtfulness that they have extended to me and to my family. Would also like to thank uh, Marie and Hollis Lucas. We've known Marie and Hollis for a long time, and, and uh, they were kind of assigned to us as host and hostess. And I don't know how many of you know Marie and Hollis, but they've been together for a long time. And they talk funny. I mean, alcoholics talk funny, but they talk in code. And uh, the other evening when they picked me up at the airport, we put the luggage in the car and we started down the road. And and Hollis was driving, and I heard Marie say to Hollis, "Uh, he's staying at the Sands. Uh, Have you any idea where that is? And Hollis says, well, I'm lost at the moment, but I know where I am. And Marie just said, oh, okay. And so the following day we were going to a meeting and now Marie was driving and Hollis was sitting. And we came to this split in the road and and Marie went off to the left and Hollis said, well, I think you should have gone to the right. And Marie said, well, I'm going this way. It's longer, but it's shorter. (laughs) And the thing that really frightens me is I understood that. And so I think we alcoholics, uh, we do talk funny. It uh, is so nice to see some of our friends, uh, Dave and Jim from Ohio and some people from Toronto, and and this has been a little like uh, old home week for Sally and, and myself. And we've known uh, most of the speakers, I guess with the exception of your speaker tomorrow morning, the other speakers have been woven in and out of our sobriety for a long time. We've known Bob and Linda and... and uh, Buddy and Beverly, uh, we've kind of grown up together in the the Fort Worth-Dallas contingency of recovery. And uh, Dave and Polly, uh, some people call her Patty, I'm going to call her Potty. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we, uh, and Jim and and Krista, we've known. So it's been interesting to me that over the last 14 years of all the people that are here, their recovery has been woven in and out of the the fabric of, of Sally and myself. I want to, uh, you know, I want to tell you, I guess I, I hope I talk a great deal about the family tonight, and before I go much further, uh, come next June, I will have been married to the same lady for 40 years, so I would like for my bride and my al to please stand, and I'd like for you to say hello to Sally. And next to her is the oldest of our four children and the love of my life and my only daughter, Roxanne. Roxanne. I would just like to say before I forget that uh, Sally is not an Al-Anon because she's married to a drunk or because she's married to an alcoholic. Uh, She's an Al-Anon because she's very active in Al-Anon. and she goes to a lot of al-anon meetings and and she participates in conferences what have i done wrong nothing, nothing. Oh, okay we got a, we got an announcement that marshall burns his wife is sick out front this way and would he please go there is that mr burns there and sometimes i think the the al-anon gets identified as an al-anon because they're married to a drunk or an alcoholic and that's just not so because Sally brings the principles of Al-Anon into our home and into the recovery process of the family and into our, our love for each other and into our home, and I am forever grateful and will always be grateful to Al-Anon and the Al-Anon principle and the program. So that's just the way I feel about Al-Anon and family recovery. As far as I can remember, I probably have always been addicted to approval. I was addicted to approval a long time before I was ever addicted to alcohol. And uh, when you're addicted to approval, I think you're very easy to manipulate. And I think you do things that you don't want to do with people that you don't want to be with and places that you really don't want to go. And I think in time you become a second-class citizen doing second-class things with second-class people in second-class places. And the thing that I love most about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it permits me to be a first-class person doing first class things with first class people in first class places and i love the feeling of the fellowship and the principles of the program about college Anonymous. i remember that i did drink in uh, in high school and in college and in the service and and uh, i was in the, the one that that lucas calls the big one the ww2 that was that was my war and I had taken basic trainings in Great Lakes in Chicago and had been shipped to a base in California called Camp Shoemaker. I had not been there very long, and we had a weekend liberty. And I remember two other fellows and myself were just going to hitchhike over to a small town called Hayward and Party for the weekend and then hitchhike back on Sunday. And I remember we started the party on Friday night, and then uh, Saturday, I remember part of, of Saturday, and then all of a sudden it was Tuesday morning before I got back to the base. And I remember that the service frowns very much on that. They uh, they, I, they, still call that absent without leave. And I remember these shore patrolmen coming to the barracks and picking me up and putting me in the jeep and taking me over to the provost marshal. and and uh, I was getting ready to be served the captain's mask. And one more time, somebody was talking to me about my behavior. The insidious thing about the disease of alcoholism is that it doesn't seem to show. The scar tissue of life doesn't show. The scar tissue of alcoholism doesn't seem to show up in our life. Yet it's there from a very early age, and it shows up in areas of insecurity and inadequacy, insufficient fund checks. Uh, it shows in the, in the areas of DWIs, um, resignations, letters of reprimand, being fired. The scar tissue of alcohol is there from the very beginning, but we just don't seem to see it. I remember I had been served this captain's mast, and one more time, this officer and responsible person was was looking at my folder of behavior. And as we talked back and forth, I remember this man finally saying to me, "Just." by any chance do you have a problem with drinking? And I thought up here in my mind, that's not possible. I'm 18 years old. I'm an Iowa farm boy, and there's a war on, and I'm away from my mother and my father, and, and there's 95,000 other sailors on this base, and if I could get back home and the war was over, I wouldn't feel the way I feel, and I wouldn't be afraid the way I'm afraid. And I was finally discharged from the service, and I went back to the University of Iowa in the fall of 1946, And I remember I had to take some entrance examinations, and that feeling of inadequacy just seemed to come over me, and the possible fear of failure and rejection was just always part of my life. I listened to Bob talk the other night, and it just seemed like he was motivated by fear and and anxiety all the time, and that's the sensation that I had. I've never been able to describe that, and a couple years ago I was listening to a couple of Alateens talk. And one turned to the other one, and he said, You know, I never drank in the third grade, but I always felt like I could have used one. (laughs) And, you know, that's kind of the feeling that I had. I never drank in the third grade, but I always felt like I could have used one. And pretty much that's what alcohol did for me. When I drank, it took out the anxiety, and it took out the fear, and it made everything kind of okay. And I remember before I had to take my entrance examinations, going over to this tavern, and and drinking so I would have the courage to take the examination. In January of 1947 I walked into a small Iowa tavern and on the campus of the University of Iowa and I saw the girl that just stood up a few minutes ago and I remember seeing her for the first time and looking at her and thinking she's just the most beautiful, striking woman that I had ever seen. And up here my alcoholic mind said, you know, that should be mine. You know how alcoholics think when they see something that should be theirs, that should be mine. And I just had one problem. I was engaged to another girl at the time. And that's not a big thing for alcoholics. When we decide to go from there to there, we just go. I mean, that's no big problem for us. And I remember I managed to get Sally's telephone number and called and thought that we should possibly date. And and three weeks later, I remember I, I got drunk, cashed in all of my war bonds, bought a ring big enough to go over any finger, called the dorm and said, Sally, would you please meet me? And she said yes. And I remember being so drunk that I could hardly get the car parked in front of the dorm. Sally came out, got in the front seat of the car. I put the ring on the wrong finger and said to her, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could have me for the rest of your life? And I want to tell you, she said yes. And we were engaged for 18 months, and then we were married. And, you know, all of a sudden this we were two frightened young kids who all of a sudden were addicted to approval. We wanted so much to be accepted in society by you. And I remember that our, our parents helped us buy a little GI house. It was uh, just a small house. We paid seven or $8,000 for it. It was a 4.5% interest loan, as I recall. And we didn't have any money, and on the weekends we would drive around the neighborhoods that we couldn't afford. And we would look at your houses, and I remember one time we were driving through this neighborhood and we saw this red house and this brass kick plate, and we thought that was so wonderful. We went home and painted our door red and put on a brass kick plate. And then a few weeks later, we would drive around and we'd look at another neighborhood and we'd see some shutters that we liked. And then we would go get shutters, and we would come home and put shutters on our house. And then we would go look at your shrubbery, and then we would go buy shrubbery and we would put it in front of our house. Because Sally and I knew one day you would drive by the house, you would nudge each other and say, boy, that's a good-looking house. And it should be. It looks just like yours. But the trap that we were falling into was we thought if we looked good on the outside, you would think we were okay on the inside. You know, I didn't know anything about loving another person or functioning for the well-being of another person. I had to come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to find out that having a good relationship is not finding the right person, it's being the right person. My having a good love affair with Sally doesn't have anything to do with Sally. It has everything to do with my behavior. When my behavior's good, my love affair's good. When my behavior's funny, my love affair's funny. The same thing holds true with my job. My having a good job has very little to do with my job. When my work habits are good, my job is good. When my work habits are bad, my my job is bad. And the thing that brought me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was my behavior finally got to the place where I couldn't accept my own behavior. Sally and I started having children. You know, I'm still startled that God's most precious gift is turned over to rank amateurs. Sally and I didn't know anything about having children. We read no manual on kids. We just thought you were supposed to have kids. And after the war, you had children. I mean, they talk about one or two. We talk about four or five or six. You know, we talked about having a lot of kids. And we started having children, you know. And I'm a salesman. I've always been in sales. And we began to move around the country a little bit from... From Iowa City to Des Moines to to St. Louis and so on. And, you know, it was an interesting thing because every time I received a promotion or we had an opportunity to move, I don't remember that Sally and I ever sat down in the quietness of our kitchen and said, Is this going to be a good move for the family? Is this going to hurt any of the children? Will somebody have to move up a grade or back a grade? In our alcoholic home, whenever we had an opportunity to move, we said, Man, we've got a chance to start all over again, and this time it's going to be different. And you know, Sally and I never saw the disease of alcoholism. We kept looking for that one tangible ingredient that was going to make it different this time. We didn't have enough bedrooms, or the yard should have been bigger, or if we were closer to the school, or if we were next to the church. We kept looking for that one ingredient that was going to go into it this time to make it different, and we never saw the disease of alcoholism. You're dealing with such a deceptive disease that by the time it deceives you and by the time you deny it, you can look right at it and say, that's not our problem. I used to think money was my problem. My creditors never called and said, you're drinking too much. My creditors called and said, would you please make some payments? And for the longest time I thought, really, money was was my problem. I was working for a large corporation called Owens Corning Fiberglass, and I just received a nice promotion to go to New York, and and uh, Sally and the four children, and I remember we all drove into New York, and Sally took the kids and went up to Connecticut and found a beautiful home. It was an old old home built in 1812 by a sea captain, and, and if you had stopped me on the street and said to me, Albert, how are things going in your life, I would have looked you right in the eye and said, just Wonderful. You can't believe how good things are in my life. I work for this large corporation. I have this beautiful wife and these four children, this lovely home up in Connecticut. And up here in my alcoholic mind, I really thought that was true because I had done all of the things that you had asked of me in society. And it should have added up, and I should have felt good. And I didn't, and Sally didn't, and we were bleeding on the inside, and we didn't know what was wrong with us. I remember one Friday night that I... uh, had commuted out to to Connecticut and I was pretty drunk when I came through the back door. And, and I remember Sally saying, saying something about my condition. She made some comment. And whenever Sally was right about my condition and I knew it, usually I would go into my alcoholic, sarcastic routine. I loved sarcasm and I loved one-line sarcasm because I could defend myself with it. When Sally would begin to close in on my condition. I would just sting her with one line of sarcasm that would just almost tear the flesh and back her up a couple of feet. And she would always react the same way. And Sally would say to me, do you mean that? And I would say, do I mean what? What you just said. What did I just say? Well, you know what you said. No, I don't. Tell me what you think you thought you heard. And then Sally would say to me what she thought she heard, and then I could really go into my alcoholic routine and I would say, Oh, God, you took it all wrong. I did not use that tone of voice. And I want to tell you, if I could get her to talk long enough, invariably she would say to me, Albert, I'm really sorry for misunderstanding. And I would say, By God, you should as hard as I work. Now, the insanity of that is we didn't do that once in a while. We did that week after week, month after month, year after year. One night I came home and I had been traveling in Texas for two weeks and I had leased a car and driven up to Connecticut and when I got to the house I wasn't in very good condition and I remember Sally saying to me, Albert, I can't live like this anymore, I'd rather be dead. And there was something different about her look and the tone of her voice, and I remember saying to her, Hey, look, it's been a long, tough week, and why don't we sleep on it, and in the morning it'll it'll seem different to all of us. And I remember on this Saturday morning in Westport, Connecticut, the only lady that I've ever loved in my life, took a razor blade from the top of our dresser and went to the master bath and was going to slit her wrists and make an attempt on her life. And I remember that I began to scream and said, My God, Sally, don't do that. Don't do that. Does, if my drinking bothers you that much, I'll stop drinking. My God, Sally, don't kill yourself. And Roxy and the three boys were there while we were screaming and yelling at each other. I've been privileged to work with the, uh, the Alateens for a small part in my recovery. And I was working with a young boy by the name of Jack, and Jack was getting beat up on a regular basis and... Uh, on Wednesday evenings, I would put Jack in my car and we'd go have a hamburger and just talk. And one Wednesday evening, he got in the car and I said, Jack, how are things going? And he said, they sound pretty good. And I said, what do you mean they sound pretty good? He said, well, they sound pretty good. He said, the disease of alcoholism has a sound to it. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, Mr. Myers, I can put one foot in the house and determine the condition of the home immediately by the sound. There's either too much noise, or there's no noise at all, or there's yelling, or profanity, or sarcasm, or flesh hitting flesh, or furniture hitting furniture. Depending upon the sound that I hear, that's how I defend myself. If I hear the wrong sound, I go to my room and I turn the lights down and the stereo up and I try to get lost. Or, he said, I try to find a friend that I think will understand and call and visit. Or if the pain gets too much, I just back out on the street because there's less pain on the street than there is in the home. He said, Mr. Myers, you know, if the sound of your house is the same today as it was a year ago, chances are you're not growing. Sally and I began to think about that, and in sobriety, Sally and I had to start looking at the sounds of our house that was hurting us. The profanity was hurting, and that had to go. But there's very innocent sounds that caused us pain. One of them was so innocent, we did it for, I don't know how many, on a Friday night in sobriety, I would come home and I would say to Sally, how would you like to go out for dinner? And she would say, I just love that. And we'd get in the car and we'd start down the road and I would say to Sally, where would you like to go for dinner? And she'd say, I don't care. I'd say, let's go over to Vincent's and get some seafood. She'd say, I don't feel like seafood tonight. I'd say, well, let's go over to the split rail and get some barbecue. she says, I don't feel like barbecue tonight. Now I want to tell you, we alcoholics are sensitive, and we don't like rejection. And within just a matter of minutes, I would be at her throat saying, well, my God, you know, and then we'd be on home and on our way home and the fight would start. Now once again, we didn't do that once in a while. We did that month after month, year after year in sobriety. And we've had to go take the sounds out of our relationship that have caused pain. There's one you hear in the fellowship all the time that hurt us a lot in the beginning. It's a little phrase that you can hear at any meeting, that's your problem. And early in sobriety one night Sally at the dinner table and we were discussing and she said to me, and that's your problem. Alcoholics are not permitted to get angry, we just kind of get even and so I just put it up there and I waited and I waited and I waited and sure enough, you know, she finally did it, she forgot and I said, and that's your problem. Now, I want to tell you something, sobriety has not altered my thinking all that much. I'm still tenacious, I'm still competitive, I'm still impulsive, I'm still compulsive. Sally hates to send me to the grocery store for a quart of milk. Not too long ago I went for a quart of milk, and I came home and Sally said, How much was the milk? And I said,
1: $30.
0: Because I, as an alcoholic, can't seem to get those empty carts up and down the aisles without putting things in there. And you don't understand, but light bulbs and panthangers hangers and superglue are very important to me. And it isn't that I need them, but I'm going to need them. I want to tell you, in my twelfth year of sobriety, I did some of my best alcoholic thinking. I looked at investments that I knew were good, and they weren't. People around me that loved me a lot said, Albert, I don't think it's that good. You might be jeopardizing your security. I got hooked up with personalities in sobriety that weren't too compatible. People around me said, gee, I don't think you have anything in common. And I thought, oh, if you knew how wonderful I am, you wouldn't say that to me. In A.A. comes of age, I think it's Dr. Tebow that says, regardless of our veteran status in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, at any time the disease of alcoholism can return. And normally it's in the form of halotosis. And I want to tell you, I was doing some strange things in sobriety, and I had reason to be up in Prince Albert, Canada. And I was talking to Cease, and I said, Cease, I'm doing some crazy things in sobriety. And he said, Albert, talk to me a little bit about that. And we talked for a while, and all of a sudden Cease said to me, he said, Albert, it isn't that you're doing anything wrong, it's that you're not doing some things at all. I said, what does that mean, Cease? He said, well, you remember when we first came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and we were all beat up? You know we got very serious about the program and we didn't get very serious about the personality i said you bet he said well in time we start to get serious about the personality and we don't get as serious about the program he said i'll bet you don't read your 24-hour book anymore every day said i bet you don't read pages 86 and 87 in the big book anymore every day said i bet you don't pray the way you used to i'll bet you don't meditate the way you used to said i'd be even willing to bet that you don't support your home group the way you used to. And I want to tell you, Cease just went down the line and kept nicking my heart one at a time. And I forgot to protect the thing that was protecting me. And thank God for the old-timer that's around here that can come to a youngster like myself and say, Hey, this is where you are. You need to get back to the basics of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am forever grateful for the people that have gone in front of me interesting thing about it is Sally and I knew about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her father came into the program in 1952, and he had 25 years of continuous sobriety before he passed away some 10 or 11 years ago. We knew what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous could do. As a matter of fact, when I finally made it in 1973, I said to Dad, I said, My God, Dad, why didn't you talk to me about my drinking? I took all the things that you loved the most in your life, I took your daughter, and I took your love, and I took your money, and I took everything that I could get, and not once did you ever talk to me about my drinking. And this marvelous man with his just piercing blue eyes just looked at me and said so softly, you would have resented it so much coming from me that it would have ruined the opportunity for the right person to reach you. And God made us all different, so we need each other. If he made us all the same, one of us wouldn't be necessary. And more than that, he's gifted each one of us with the ability to touch one other human being that nobody else can touch. And I'm willing to bet that each one of you are here tonight in this room because one other human being had the ability to reach in and touch you deeper than all the rest. I want to tell you, Sally took her best shot for 26 years. And she had some other people take their best shot. And one morning in a halfway house in Shreveport, Louisiana, a man I'd never seen before in my life, said, you don't have to hurt anymore if you don't want to hurt anymore. And I haven't had a drink since. Don't you know Sally went crazy the first 24 hours trying to figure out what he must have said? I managed to get my arms around Sally that morning when she was attempting to take her life. And and I remember we drug her out into the bedroom and we took her to a psychiatrist. We always took her to a psychiatrist. Somehow we figured out if we could get her fixed, I wouldn't drink so much. And we agreed that whatever the psychiatrist told us, we would do. And I remember at the end of this period of time, the three of us sat down and we put together this plan. And he said, now your real problem is your Iowa farm kids and you're back here in New England and you're out of your element. And if you go back to Iowa and be near family and school and church and friends and Albert, you don't travel so much, it will be okay. And I want to tell you we put this all down on paper just like you were building a house and we never put the disease of alcoholism in there. Sally never called me an alcoholic. We went back to Iowa City which was my home in the right part of town. Bought the right house. And I became pretty much of a periodic drunk. It isn't that I didn't drink every day but every once in a while and I can't tell you why I would just get up and go to work and go to lunch and have a meeting, and somebody would say, let's go to Chicago, and I would say, terrific, sounds good to me. And I would go on these two- and three- and four-day drunks, periodic drunks. There used to be a fellow by the name of Bob White down at Lake Whitney in Texas that said, if you go on periodic drunks like that often enough, they will show up in your living room. And he said, I'm going to call them they because I don't know where they come from, and they show up when you need them the least. And I had been on this four-day drunk, and sure enough, they were in the living room. And they said to me, you need to go to the alcohol and psychiatric clinic at the University of Iowa. And when alcoholics finally get cornered and the evidence becomes so tangible that you can't wiggle anymore, you begin to say funny things like, okay. And I remember on a Monday morning at the University of Iowa Psychiatric Hospital that a man was talking to me about my drinking and he said, Albert, when you drink anymore, more you hurt people. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, when you drink anymore, more you get in all kinds of trouble, and I said that too. He said, let me tell you a little something about alcoholism. He said, there are people that are allergic to strawberries. When they eat them, they break out in a rash. Your problem is when you get an ounce of alcohol in you, you have hives of the brain. I said, God, John, I'm allergic to alcohol. He said, that's right. And you need to talk to a man from Alcoholics Anonymous, and you need to go to an AA meeting. And I want to tell you, in 1967, a man who is now dead by the name of Gil Voss did exactly what it tells you to do in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Working with Others. And he told me what had happened to him and the shame and the guilt and the degradation and the divorces and the separations and the bankruptcies. And it was a terrible story, and I kept thinking, that hasn't happened to me. That hasn't happened to me. That hasn't happened to me. I remember I got home that evening and I told Sally, I said, my God, you should have heard that story. It was terrible. I mean, if I ever get that bad, I'll join Alcoholics Anonymous. Or if I get as bad as your father, I'll join Alcoholics Anonymous. And within a short period of time, I was on periodic drunks again, and they gathered in the living room. And they said, this time we're going to take your house, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to keep the equity. And we're going to give you some basic furniture that we think you're going to need to live with, but we suggest very strongly that we auction off the rest, and we're going to keep the equity. And the interesting thing about it is, as I look down and I see Sally and the daughter here now, there was sally and myself and the four kids the house is gone the furniture is being auctioned off and we never saw the disease of alcoholism the kids would get to be 18 and they'd go off to college and i think isn't that wonderful They're going off to college hell they just never came back once they had an opportunity to get out of that alcoholic home they left the daughter wrote me a letter one time and i remember there was a phrase in there that says you'll always be my father but my love for you will never be the same and I read that over and over again, thinking, my God, what have I done? I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be the way I am. I mean, I'm motivated by my good intentions, but you judge me on my actions. Can't you see my intentions are good? And the oldest son hit the campus in the late 60s at the University of Iowa, and it was a very rebellious time, and and uh, he managed to get into some drugs, and uh, into a marriage and child and divorce before he was 21 and into another relationship with child and no marriage. And I remember Sally and I would sit and we would talk thinking, what in the world is going on in our family? What is happening to us? And the middle son was kind of the quiet child that they seemed to talk about in ACA. It just seemed to me one morning I came to breakfast and he was gone. And then there's John, who was the youngest of the four, and John just couldn't get out. He was just too young, couldn't buy his way out, and age wouldn't do anything for him. And I used a friend, and I got a job in Shreveport, Louisiana, and Sally and John and I went to Shreveport. And if Sally were to come up here, she would tell you that I drank pretty much around the clock. I would get up in the morning and try to figure out how I could exist through the day and find a place that night. One night at a place called Shreve Square, I was driving my car and I looked in the rearview mirror and those red lights were going around and, and I thought, man, I'm going to be careful because I've heard about Louisiana Cattle Parish police deputies and they're mean. And I remember I just pulled this car over as, as gently as I could and I was going to be prepared for these policemen and they came around to the side of the car and I rolled the window down and they said, could we have your driver's license? And I said, sure. And I just handed it to them out the window, and then I made a grave tactical error. I drove off and left them standing there. The the reputation is well-founded. They're very mean, and uh, the second time they got the car stopped, there wasn't any dialogue. Just the door flew open, and they pulled out the body, and I remember they threw me over the hood, and I could feel the handcuffs going up the back, and my alcoholic mind is saying, God, I hope nobody's watching this. You know, cars are going by, and... They take me down to the jail cell there on Texas Avenue in Shreveport and uh, do all the things they need to do for DWIs. And finally a man says, we're going to have to put you in the cell. And I said, terrific, what do I care? And and I remember they just kind of pushed me in there head first, and as I turned around, the bars were coming together, and then that sound that that God created for us when we're in jail with the the clank. And for one second, I just kind of saw myself in New York in the glass building overlooking Central Park. And... To the jail cell in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I thought, man, I got a big problem. I got a big problem. And the man said, You could make a call, and that almost scared me because people that had loved me for so long said, Just don't call. We don't care. And being a good salesman, I called my best customer. I mean, that's what alcoholic salesmen do, and they're in jail. And Frank was not in the program, and I remember he came down, and Frank said to me, Hey, You know, I'll get you out of jail. When we got in the front seat of his car, I said, let's go get a six-pack and straighten this out. And Frank turned to me and said, no, why don't you spend the night at my house and in the morning we'll try to figure out what to do with you. And the way he said that was so degrading and my insides were screaming, what do you mean try to figure out what to do with me? And I remember I was watching this large clock in his kitchen and I didn't sleep much that night and... It got to be exactly 6 o'clock in the morning, and I called an Episcopal priest at Holy Cross Church in Shreveport, and I said, Father Paul, this is Albert, and I'm I'm in big trouble. And he said, Can you get down to the church? And I said, Yes, I can. And I got down there, and we began to talk, and he said, Albert, I want you to go to this halfway house. It's called the Bridge House on Stoner Avenue, and there's a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor over there that I think you can relate to. And I thought, God, how can I relate to a 74-year-old retired electrical contractor in a halfway house? I'm an executive-type guy, God, you know, and I just, but you know, when you're cornered, you say funny things like, okay. And uh, on a Friday morning at 10.30, I walked down to this halfway house, and I remember I went in, and I sat down at a long table about like this. they sat me at the end, and there were three old guys there, and one of them said to me, When did you have your last drink? And I began to cry, and I was pounding the table, and I said, I had my last drink last night, and I got $1,200 worth of hot checks, and the house is gone, and the furniture's gone, and three of the four kids are gone, and I'm about to get fired. They want to pick up the car, and Sally wants to leave, and one of the." One of them said to me, would you do anything to get sober? I said, God, I'll do anything. And this old guy said, would you go to seven meetings in a row? Seven meetings in a row. Boy, and I turned around and I saw all of those slogans on the wall and I said, hell, they're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. I've seen those slogans in Sally's dad's house. And I began to get up out of this chair and this marvelous old man put his arm around me and he said, Albert, we need to go for a ride. He said, I have a friend at Chumford Hospital that I want you to meet and and a nurse and and a nun over there by the name of Sister Germaine. And I want to tell you, it wasn't the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I saw that morning printed somewhere. What I had was a man with the 12 Steps carved in his life and I knew he knew he was everything that I wasn't that morning. God, he was quiet, and I was noisy, and he was calm, and I was nervous. And I say, but the house is gone. He said, I understand. Yeah, but Sally and the kids want to leave. Ah, it's okay. Yeah, but God, I got these hot checks. It's all right. And no matter what I said that morning, the only thing the man ever said to me is, hey, it's, it's all right. It's okay. I understand. We got a way out. And I remember he put me in the front seat of the car, and we started to drive towards this hospital. And Bill said to me, he said, you know, Albert, I never did quit drinking. And that's all he said. And I started thinking about that. And the priest was right. I can relate to this guy. And I love the cure. I don't know how he's doing that, but I love the cure. And we went over to the hospital, and we talked to his friend, and on the way back to the halfway house, he did it to me one more time. He just set the hook. And he said, Albert, you know, I never did quit drinking. As a matter of fact, I may have a drink tomorrow. I said, Bill, how long have you been doing that? He said, what's that, Albert? I said, that not quit drinking. He said, 27 years, but I may have a drink tomorrow. But he said, Albert, you need to know nobody ever took my right to drink away from me. Now, I don't know what I thought you were going to take away from me. We alcoholics have a hold of this rock. And we're going to the bottom of the lake, and everybody around us is saying, Let go of the rock! And we're saying, Hell no, it's mine! I said, But Bill, you're going to take away my freedom. And this pathetic glaze came over his face, and he said, Your freedom? He said, God, let's talk a little bit about freedom. He said, I have this fenced-in yard, and every morning I put the dog out there to play. And he said, it barks at the birds and it soaks up the sunshine and it's got plenty to eat. And at night I come home and I pick it up and I love it and take it in the house. Now, he said, I could let that dog be perfectly free and open up the back gate. And it could get out and maybe get run over by a truck, picked up by somebody that doesn't love it as much as I do. Go without food and starve, possibly. He said, it seems to me of the two freedoms, I'd rather be the dog on the inside of the fence. And he said, you can be as big and as free as you want as long as you stay on the inside of the fence of the principles of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I said, Bill, I'm a salesman, Bill. (laughs) They're still out there. If that dumb thing works, I'm going to have to go out there and earn a living, and somebody's going to ask me if I want to have a drink, and I won't know what to tell them. He said, you want to know what to tell them if they ask you to have a drink? I said, God, yes. He said, tell them you can't drink that stuff It gets you drunk. I said, is that it? He said, yeah, that's it. He said, you do understand that when they drink it, it gets them drunk. I said, I never really thought about it. Now up here, I said, that will never work. might work for you, but it won't work for me. I'm 90 days in the program. I have a brand new job. An ex-Dallas Cowboy football player came to my office to sell me some radio media, took me to a place called the Hungry Hunter. And we went right up to the bar and Dave said to me, Albert, would you like to have a drink? I said, Oh, God, Dave, I can't drink that stuff. It gets me drunk. He said, Oh, geez, don't drink it. I said, Okay, I won't. It just never dawned on me that honesty would really work. You know, when we read how it works in the first two paragraphs, there are three references to honesty. Those of us that don't make it are those that can't get completely honest with themselves in this simple program. In eleven different places in how it works, it has reference to honesty. And I've had to work with that right up until this very minute. Hoss, or, or Bill said to me, you'll be at this halfway house at 10.30 every morning, and we're going to start working the steps. And I hadn't been there a morning, and Bill said, you can't travel anymore. All I've ever done for a living, he said, I don't care. Whatever you've been doing, you're not going to do that anymore. I said, what am I going to do? He said, I, you're going to sell used cars. I said, Bill, I've never sold used cars. He said, you're going to start. And I said, yes, sponsor. And I want to tell you, old Bill every day would come to the used car lot. And he'd roll down the window, and he'd say, you all right, Albert? And I'd say, yep, I'm just fine. And then one day, Bill said to me, you got to get a sponsor that you can relate to on a daily basis. He said, there's a fella that sells on the road for RCA, and he stays sober. I said, you mean he travels on the road, sells for RCA, and stays sober? He said, yes. Yeah. I think he would be a good sponsor for you. You ever notice who we turn our life over to in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous? This fellow's name was Hoss Ross. And on a Tuesday night in Shreveport, Louisiana, at the Highland Group, I'm looking for a fellow by the name of Hoss Ross. And I told a couple of guys, I said, when Hoss comes in, let me know. And pretty soon they said, there he is. And I looked over, and Hoss, about six foot three, weighs 135 pounds, and he dressed all in one color, all red, all blue, all green. And I went over to Hoss, and I said, Hoss, I understand you travel on the road for RCA, and you say so. He said, that's right, son. I said, I've also been told that you would be a real good sponsor for me. Would you be my sponsor? He said, I'd be honored." He said, you have one of them big books? I said, not of my own, Hoss. He said, come with me. And I remember he got a big book that night, and he wrote in the cover of it, To a Long Life in the Fellowship, Hoss Ross. And he said, you have one of them cards? So we belong to this club. And I said, No. And he took me over, and we signed the card to the Highland Group that night, and I became a part of it. And I want to tell you, Hoss called me every single day. He called say, What are you doing, son? I'd say, Nothing. He said, I'll be right over. And I went on for about two weeks, and I told Sal, I said, I've made a mistake. I mean, I can't get rid of this guy. Hoss called one night and said, What are you doing, son? I said, Haas, I'm busy. He said, Good, I'll come do it with you. (laughs) You But I want to tell you, on December the 13th, 1973, Sally and myself and one son went to Dallas, Texas. And I was driving a car that was co-signed by my sponsor. I was going to a job that was arranged by my sponsor. And the money in my in my pocket that I had to buy groceries was given to me by my sponsor because somebody that I had never met before in my life 90 days before trusted me with the principles of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the pledge that I would pass it along anytime that I could. Bill's dead down, Homer's dead now, but I think very often of what they would have me do. The young son that we took along was so angry that he used to keep a loaded shotgun in the bedroom for Sally and myself, and when we would go in to visit, he would kind of put his hand on the shotgun. And As a matter of fact, we wound up in a small psychiatrist's office, a 10 by 10 room, hitting each other with pillows, trying to get the anger and the hostility out so we wouldn't hurt each other. And finally, he had to go back and live with a family in Shreveport so that Sally and I could get started in our own programs, in Al-Anon and in Alcoholics Anonymous. we found a little group called Alpha, and we've been very active as a family. And we've been in the program for about two years, and one weekend Sally and I were looking at houses. That's what alcoholics do, they don't have any money, they look at houses. And we were looking at this townhouse, as a matter of fact, and this lady said, it's only $50,000, 5% down, eight and three-quarter percent interest, 30-year loan, and Sally and I just giggled at each other. Number one, we didn't have a credit card. The day before, we tried to cash a check for $25, and we didn't have a credit card, and Here we are talking about this lady, this house, townhouse for $50,000. But that evening I called my sponsor and I said, Bill, you'll never guess what Sally and I were doing today. He said, what's that, Albert? I said, we were looking at houses. He said, really? He said, tell me a little bit about that. And as we began to talk back and forth, all of a sudden Bill said to me, would you like to buy that house? I said, well, of course. They said, well, why don't you write a letter? I said, to who? He said, the loan committee that that lady was talking about. Do you ever notice how we alcoholics are scared to death of losing something we don't own anyway? Sally and I were scared to death we were going to lose a house we didn't own anyway. So he said, Now you write this letter and you say, My name is, and I work for this company, and this is my area of responsibility, and this is what I make, and I'm a very active member of the Alpha Group, Alcoholics Anonymous, Dallas, Texas. And Sally works for this group of doctors, and this is her area of responsibility, and this is what she makes. And she's a very active member of the Alamon family group, Alpha Dallas, Texas. And on a Monday morning, Sally and I took that letter and we drove up in front of this little loan company, Oak Cliff Savings and Loan. And we got very quiet in the front seat of the car and we held hands. And we said out loud like I told you to do in the big book. And we said together, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, and victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And there was a quietness, and there was a strength in the front seat of that car that Sally and I hadn't felt in a long time. And we kind of had that feeling that whatever happens is going to be okay. And I remember we went in, and we sat down in front of this little loan officer, and I still dislike loan forms because they ask embarrassing questions for alcoholics but we got down to credit and i said to the man we don't have any money and we don't have any credit and it's just a peculiar look came over his face and i said but i want you to take this letter and you give it to the loan committee and you let them decide whether sally and i should be a part of your community or not and i want to say that it was two or three or maybe four weeks i can't remember now but they called and said come get your fifty thousand dollars because my sponsor said to me, write a letter. Sally and I were chairing a meeting one night, and a man came in. You could tell he was very troubled, and Sally, just out of courtesy, said, is there anything anybody would like to talk about this evening? And this man's hand just flew straight up in the air. He said, by golly, I'd like to talk about something, and Sally said, Yeah. He said i just got out of this treatment center and i got this crazy wife and these four kids and if i could just get them straightened out i would be okay and for about an hour we tried to get a net over him and at the end of the meeting i went over and i said my name's albert he said my name is jim i said what do you do jim he said i'm regional manager for Owen scorning fiberglass i said oh you know you wouldn't god and we we became good friends and i became his sponsor and Within a short period of time, Jim said to me one day, he said, Albert, why don't you come back to work for Owens Corning Fiberglass? I said, Jim, you don't understand. Up there in Toledo in my folder, there's a little thing that says, don't ever, don't ever let this gorilla back. And Jim said to me, he said, no, we've changed our posture on that a little bit. He said, of the 24,000 employees that we have, over 1,900 of them are in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, why don't you write a letter? (laughs) So I knew who to write, you know, and I did. And I wrote this letter, and I said, dear guy, Jim and I are talking about this, and the possibility is just more than I would even hope to pray for. And within a short period of time, they sent word down, would you please send a resume? And I knew they had my resume, so I just gave them an alcoholic resume. You know, driving while intoxicated, Shreveport Jail, fired from last job, sold used cars two months, and I just got it back up to Toledo. And within a short period of time, they said, could you come up for interviews? And I went up, and, and I remember, you know, this guy just looked at me very strange. They'd just never seen a resume where a guy starts out in jail. They're just not accustomed to them. And the last interview that i had that day was a man that had been my branch manager some 20 years prior in kansas city and it went like this he said albert how's sally and the kids i said terrific how's marion and your kids he said super he said are you ready to come back and i said you bet and they bridged some 20 years and i went back to work for owens corning fiberglass i'd been with them a little over a year and i had a heart attack i'd been playing some racquetball and then i didn't have the symptomatic pain that goes with heart attacks i just had a a little nagging pull behind my shoulder blade. As a matter of fact, I thought I'd just pulled a muscle, and the following day I went to work, and I had a business luncheon, and that night Sally and I went out for dinner, and it began to nag a little profusely, and I, I became uncomfortable with it, and I said, why don't you run me down to Presbyterian, and we'll take a look, and and I went down there, and as the examination started, this guy all of a sudden said, you're going to feel better with these hoses up your nose, and this IV in your arm, and this nitro under your tongue, and I had had a heart attack and shut down the whole right coronary area, and they had taken me from emergency up to intensive care. And if you know anything about intensive care heart units, they're very strict and they're very rigid, and they have these bronze plaques on the wall that say family only, limit two minutes, two people only. And Sally and one of the sons had just been there visiting. They were standing at the end of the bed, and I'm wired, and I'm going in and out of the oxygen, and they just left. And as I came to, the next time there was this beautiful black guy standing at the end of my bed that I sponsored. And I said to Bob, I said, Bob, how the hell did you get in here? He said, I told him I was family. (laughs) I said, what else did you tell him? He said, I told him you were my father. (laughs) Yeah, we do take our... Friendship, seriously, that it, it, it is comical. But the love displayed by another member of the program has touched me deeply for a long time. I had a second heart attack, and I also had no pain with it. It was just a routine examination, and they discovered more scar tissue and suggested strongly that I go to the cardiologist and uh, have an angiogram. So I met with the cardiologist, and he said, "You have a problem. You can't seem to monitor your disease." And I said, "Yeah, that's happened to me once before," and. Uh, so they did the angiogram and uh, said, you really, uh, we think you need a triple bypass. And even then, alcoholics like to negotiate. I remember talking to the surgeon and saying, if I don't have the triple bypass, the man said, well, you'll die. I said, oh, okay. So, and, uh, you know, I've, I've said this many times from the podium, and I don't advocate open-heart surgery for an in-depth third step, but I want to tell you the night before open-heart surgery, you will have a complete understanding that you're not running anything. And between the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer, those were the two prayers that kept going over and over in my mind. And I remember the night before open-heart surgery, I said, My Creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. And it was okay. It was okay. And Sally and I have come to find out and know and trust and love that. There's very little that can happen to the two of us that can't be taken care of by the principles and the love and the strength and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not too many years ago, the daughter was having some problems in her relationship, and she called and said, hey, could I bring one of the boys and come to Texas? And I said, sure, honey, when are you coming? And she told me, and I said, you may want to pick another weekend because... Mom's going to be busy at a conference up in Oklahoma that weekend, and she said, No, I think I'd like to come down and be with you, and I said, God, that'd be wonderful. And so she came to Texas, and and I'm a father that's plagued with a great deal of guilt where his children are concerned, and I, I'm a tangible person, and I want to buy that tangible gift still and give it to you to tell you that I, I love you and that I'm sorry for what I've done. It's taken me a long time to figure out that all the, all the kids got hurt differently, And they have all healed differently, and I have not seen it correctly. Those that I thought had kind of surface scratches were bleeding internally, and those that I thought were bleeding internally just had the surface scratch. And I'm a very tangible alcoholic, and I don't see stealing someone's peace of mind as a theft. And I never saw that with my children and roxy and i were shopping together and and she's very careful not to point because if she points chances are i'll try to get it for her so we were just kind of walking around this expensive mall and i said to her hey i see in this morning's paper that that george shearing and mel torme are playing down to fairmont how would you like to have a nice night on the town with your father she said i would just love that we made arrangements to sit with the with the boy and we got all gussied up and went down to the fairmont hotel and the maitre d took us to our table and the band began to play and i said to roxy hey how would you like to dance and she said i would just love that and i remember as we're dancing just as i look down now and see her and i hold her and i remember she began to talk into my ear about you're just the greatest dad in all the world i just don't know anybody that's more wonderful than you and this is such a special night And don't you know the love that I had for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. Because I didn't come to be a good father or to be a good husband or to be a good anything. I came to get the heat off and the pain out of my life. And you gave me a set of principles that made me a functioning human being to my family and to my friends and to my community. And I will be forever grateful. And Roxy and I have a love and a relationship today with father and daughter that's just unsurpassed anything I would have prayed for. The oldest son that uh, just had a difficult time. I can't tell you why Chuck had a difficult time. He's just tough with relationships and he would get in and out of jail and And I remember they called one time from Austin and he was in jail on two counts of criminal mischief and then I hung up the phone and it was going to be $2,000 for the attorney and I'm just ranting and raving I'm saying to Sally, my God, he's 32 years old. When in the hell is he going to stay out of jail? I mean, I didn't stay out till I was 46, but, you know. I'm... But I'm a father that's plagued with a lot of guilt, and he's in jail, and I want to help. You know, I want to do the right thing, but I'm an enabler, and I almost crippled him. And a, a couple months later, they called, and he was in jail again on, on account of criminal harassment. And uh, I forget, it was $5,000 for this and that. And they put Chuck on the phone, and in the middle of the conversation... I can't tell you how I did this or why I did it, but somehow I just said, Chuck, I've had enough. I just don't want to play anymore. I love you like a rainbow, but I just don't want to play anymore. And I don't know how you got in jail, and I don't know how you're going to get out. And I remember I put the phone down so quietly, and I put the phone down, and God, my heart was broken, and I couldn't think. And I didn't know who to call, and I couldn't get it on. And I called an Alan and I said, Hey, this is Albert, and God, I've just said no to my son for the first time in 12 years, and my heart is broken. And she said, Of course it is. You're a father, but you've got to work the steps. I said, Hell, I know the steps. She said, Yeah, but you're not working the steps. She said, You've got to admit out loud that you're powerless over your son, and he makes your life unmanageable. And I want to tell you, I had intellectualized that a thousand times, and I had not done it in my heart. And I said out loud that morning, I'm powerless over Chuck, and he makes my life unmanageable. And that's right. I'm powerless over Chuck, and he makes my life unmanageable. And I will come to believe that a power greater than myself will restore him to sanity, because I'm not helping. And I'm going to turn his will and his life over to the care of God, as I understand. And then this al said to me, Write down two or three things that make you feel real guilty about your son. And I didn't even hesitate. And I remember I took the pen out that morning and I wrote, Made him do things that he didn't want to do when he was small. He was the firstborn son and I wanted him to be a jock. And every time the sun was shining, my foot was in the middle of his back. And you will play organized ball. And you will play police athletically. And one of these days you're really going to thank me for it because that's a competitive world out there. Boy, and I used to take him by the shoulders and I'd just shove him up against the wall and I'd get those eyeballs about that big and I'd say, My God, you just get your hair cut if you just pick up your room, if you just get to school on time. If you just do what I tell you to do, you could be just like me. Boy, and he used to look out and say, I'll do anything but be like you. One day I had him frozen up there and he just looked me straight in the eye and he said, You're insane. Doug dare you talk to me like that I put the clothes on your back the roof over your head the food on the table if it wasn't for me you wouldn't have what you have and I didn't know how true that was and I left him in jail that morning about three months ago four months ago I had a chance to go down to Austin to spend the evening with my son and have dinner and play golf the next morning We just talked for the first time in a long time, not about the program, not about anything. And last Father's Day, I got a big Father's Day card about the size of that. On the front of it was a monkey, all dressed up like Humphrey Bogart. And as you opened up the card on the inside, it said, here's looking at you, Dad. And down on the bottom, it had P.S. I just want to tell you how proud I am of what you've done with your life. You've certainly given me something to look up to. And that's the first time in 14 years I've seen any tangible compassion that the recovery process has taken place with that son. The middle son, Tom, just calls and says, Hey, Dad, I love you when we can maybe get together and play some golf. And we just have great love for each other. And the young son that used to keep the loaded shotgun for us a couple years ago said, Dad, can we play some golf and go have lunch? And I said, Sure. And after we were finished playing golf, we sat down to have some lunch, and all of a sudden John said to me, he said, Dad, sometimes I find myself drinking with people that I don't want to drink with. Did that ever happen to you? You know, a couple times. And he said, Dad, sometimes I find myself in places that I don't want to be. Did that ever happen to you? And I said, sure. And he said, Dad, sometimes I start out the night with two or three hundred dollars and in the morning I've only got ten or twenty and I don't know where the money went did that ever happen to you and I said sure and he said what do you think and I said about what do you want me to think that you have a drinking problem or that you have a living problem? if you do let me tell you what I'm going to do for you I'm going to do for you what your mom's dad did for me I'm going to give you the names of two people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know them both. And I'm going to give you their home phone and their business phone. And if the pain or the confusion in your life gets so bad that you can't stand it anymore, you call them. They have a way out. And the reason that I'm doing that is I'm your father. And I'm afraid I would cripple you or kill you. Because when it comes to how it works, I can't seem to look at my children without a certain amount of expectations. I can look at your kids and accept exactly where they are and tell you what to do and I can help. And I've tried over and over again and I can't do it with my own children. But I've come to live very comfortably and sleep very good at night knowing one thing, the time will come when I will save your kids and you will save mine. And I don't worry about that anymore. It's nice to have a love affair going with your lady after 40 years. I loved hearing Bob say the other night that he and Linda date. When I first came into the program, this old 74-year-old retired electrical contractor said to me, you will date your wife. And every Friday afternoon, we do pretty much the same thing, whether it's go to the zoo or cotton candy or movies or maybe just hold hands and walk in the park. And I had to come to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to find out that love is not looking at each other. It's looking in the same direction. Chronologically, Sally and I have had a lot of years together, but we're still on a daily basis learning how to touch and feel and not be afraid of each other. And we do that with the principles of the program. One of the problems that we had when we first got here was we didn't know how to talk. We didn't know how to communicate. We couldn't talk about money or sex or children or the things that needed to be cleared up and cleaned up and resurrected and reconstructed. And one day we were on our way to Louisiana and Sally said to me, would you like to have a meeting? And I said, I would love to. And she said, my name is Sally and I'm a very grateful Al-Anon. And then she talked that morning about what she needed to talk about. And then I said, my name is Albert and I'm a very grateful alcoholic and I talked. And every once in a while I would interrupt and she would remind me we're in a meeting. and to this very day when we need to talk about something that's sensitive be it money or sex or children or whatever it is sally and i will say hey i need to have a meeting and she will say my name is there's a story about a little boy named teddy who wasn't retarded he was just slow and teddy was the brunt of a lot of jokes and laughter from the other kids and a lot of hurt and one day teddy went to school and the teacher said i'm going to give you all an assignment i'm going to give you a little carton a little container and i want you to go find something that was created by god that's beautiful and so each of the children took their carton in their container and they left and one by one they came back the following day and the teacher began to call on them one at a time and she called on jane and jane brought up her container and they opened it up and on the inside was a butterfly and the teacher said only god could have created something that beautiful and then she called on Herman, and Herman brought his up, and they opened up the container, and on the inside was a rose, and the teacher said, only God could have created something that's beautiful. And then she called on Teddy, and Teddy brought his up, and they opened it up, the teacher opened it up, and it was empty, and all the kids began to laugh, and the teacher said to Teddy, Teddy, I don't understand. You were to have brought something that was created by God that's beautiful and Teddy looked at the teacher and said the most beautiful thing that I know of was the resurrection and that came from an empty tomb and so sometimes I think God reduces us to nothing before he uses us I think the alcoholic is the resurrected living dead I think there's a little piece of white velvet on the inside of each one of us that even God doesn't permit us to soil I think there comes a time when he looks down and says, Boy, i got to get Albert out of the race. He is not doing well. For the new people that are here, I would like to tell you this. If you were to give me a piece of paper and say, Albert, write down all the things that you've lost because you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have to put nothing on the paper. If you were to say to me, Write down all the things that you've lost because you've said your name is Albert Byers and you're an alcoholic, I could put nothing on the paper but if you were to say to me albert write down all the things that you've lost before you got to the program of alcoholics anonymous i would be here for a long long time i want to thank you once again for permitting me the privilege to be a part of your fellowship by the sea it's just an unbelievably nice thing in my life and I'm sure if Sally and Roxanne and the other children could come up here and they could see what I see and feel what I would feel, what I feel, they would tell you what I'm about to tell you. We're very grateful that you've given us our life back. We're very privileged to be in your presence. And we love you very, very much, and we thank you for having us. Thank you for now.